All right, Colossians chapter 1. What I want to speak on tonight is confident biblical ministry. Confident biblical ministry. I don't know if we know how we have been influenced by Greek philosophy and the ideas behind Greek philosophy. Remember that that Greek philosophy goes back to about 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ. Um, You know, then you had Christ came and established Christianity and uh, as the the marriage of uh, pagan, the pagan Roman religion with Christianity through Rome and the church at Rome led to the Dark Ages. Toward the end of the Dark Ages, you had the Reformation, but you also had the Renaissance. And as a part of the Renaissance, it was the um, th- this this emphasis on Greek thinking and Greek learning and Greek uh, definitions of ideas. It came back into vogue and became the and, and really has continued through today. Um, Thomas Aquinas is the father of a, of a system of thinking called Thomism or Thomism. And what he did was he really reintroduced Greek philosophy into Roman Catholicism. And so there are a lot of Protestant thinkers that really love Thomas Aquinas. They really love uh, his, his thinking and his reasoning. Uh, we're going to look at some of that tonight, but I want us to back up a little bit before that about um, a thousand years. And what happened was there was a man named Thales. Thales is called the father of Western philosophy or the father of Greek philosophy. Thales was looking for, and and, okay, I'll just say it this way. I'm I'm trying to figure out how I can say these things to you without absolutely wanting to, you guys wanting to put an ice pick through your eye to say, please make him stop. I preached a message uh, years ago in, in, uh, in Stillwater called The Questions That Death Answers. The Questions That Death Answers. And Laura told me she wanted to kill herself before that sermon was over. Um, so I'm going to try. Uh, it was a really, I thought, profound and deep philosophical response to uh, or, uh, use of death and defending Christ, but apparently it didn't work. Um, So I'm going to try and keep this from being that, uh, but it'll help you to understand where some of these ideas come from. All right, so Thales was trying to explain existence, and he didn't know God. He didn't know the one true God. Just like Bill Nye was trying to explain existence apart from the one true God, that was Thales' task. How do you think he did? About as well as Bill Nye. You have to come up with myths or with ideas. And so what they were looking for was the arche, so A-R-C-H-E, the arche. So think of archbishop or uh, some, it, it's the highest idea. We think of monarchy, that's the one highest. They were looking for the arche, which is the root or the center or the chief cause or the chief reason for being. Anyone heard of string theory? They're still looking for it. The God particle in physics, string theory, they're still looking for that arche. They haven't found it yet. Okay? And that's what Thales was doing five or six hundred BC. 
And what he said, everything boils down to water. Get it? See what I did there? That, that all, of, all of existence can come down to this idea of water. There was a guy that followed him. His name was Heraclitus. Heraclitus said that, that, that the arche is called the Logos, L-O-G-O-S, the Logos. Now, we know from John 1.1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word for word is Logos. Okay? So, but this was about 500 years before that was written. And so here is Heraclitus, and he says that this arche, this one unifying idea, is the Logos. And so he said that the element that represents this idea is fire. And he said that everything is in a constant state of flux or a constant state of change. He's the guy that came up with the idea that you never step in the same river twice. All right? Well, he was followed by a guy named Parmenides. Parmenides. Parmenides believed that there was no such thing as change. All right? And so his famous statement was, out of nothing, nothing comes. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So nothing ever really changes. The more things change, the more... That goes all the way back to Parmenides of 500 B.C. All right? And so now you've got a problem. You've got the two, these two major philosophers, and they are at odds with each other about the arche, the center idea of the universe. Well, following uh, Parmenides was one of his students, um, Zeno of Alia, and he came up with these four paradoxes to demonstrate, or, or these, these, there were stories that had a paradox in them, and these stories demonstrated how nothing ever changes. And philosophers, they began wrestling with the concept of infinity through Zeno of Elia's paradoxes. And what they found out was that philosophy cannot explain the infinite. How many of you already knew that? Okay. Because our, our finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. When you think of God, His ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heaven is above the earth. That's how much higher God's thoughts are than our thoughts. Okay. And, and we get that, but remember, these guys did not know God. They didn't know God. And so you have this, this tension that's happening in the philosophical world. Then there came a, there, uh, along came a man named Plato. Plato. And Plato, what he did was he, he was kind of an early um, Hegel. You know, Hegel came up with the Hegelian dialectic, the, the thesis and the antithesis and then the synthesis. You know, the thesis is the, the, the main idea. The antithesis is the opposite of that. And through uh, dialogue and consensus, you come to a synthesis, which is if this is the truth and this is error, now you have error. Right? That's the Hegelian dialectic. That's what evolution is based on. That's what Marxism is based on. All of that came from the influence of Hegel. But the earliest understanding of that in philosophy... Are, how many, who's bored? All right. Aaron, hit him. Um, <laughs> So, here, here's, the, here's the, the idea. What Plato did was he synthesized those ideas. It was an early dialectical understanding. And now, now this is important. We're actually going somewhere with this. All right? So, all of these guys, they boiled down everything to one of the elements. Earth, wind, fire, uh, super twins. And they would all come together and, and do these things. Wonder twins. Wonder twins. All right? So, how many of you are already thinking Wonder Twins before I actually 
said it. Some of you were. How many of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about? Raise your hands. Okay. Too young, too old, just right. Um, <laughs> Goldilocks. It's all just <laughs> going crazy in here. Um, so what Plato did was Plato is really contributed three major ideas to the world's thinking that are, are still profoundly influential today. And they are his, his theory of forms, his theory of forms. Now, what is that? So here you have a chair, and what Plato would say, and I believe that's the illustration he used was a chair, uh, that somewhere in the universe there is an, an ideal chair, and it's existed forever, and, and everything that is, it's always been, okay? And so there's an ideal chair somewhere. So here comes this guy who builds a chair. And now we move to his... Th so, so everything has always been and nothing ever changes in that. It's always actually been. So that's the theory of forms or the theory of ideas. All right? Then his next idea is this. Now a guy comes along and builds a chair. He didn't really invent that. He recalled it. He remembered it. It's his theory of recollection. Because there is that ideal form and nothing is ever actually new, then it must be recalled. Well, how could he recall it? Well, that goes to his third idea, and that is the theory, his theory of the tripartite soul. That means the soul has three parts, um, appetite, will, and reason. All right? We're not going to dwell on that, but this is, this, is the, this is where his whole thought system uh, evolves. So this theory of forms, everything has always existed. This theory of recollection, you don't really invent something, you remember it. And the key part of his theory of the tripartite soul is souls are eternal. And when a person is born, that's just a soul that comes to earth. Okay? And takes a body. That's great, Pastor Jim. What's that have to do with us? Well, the first thing that I want you to understand is that Christianity and, and many people in modern conservative Christianity have been greatly influenced by the philosophers and they love them. All right? The other thing is, as I mentioned today with Ken Ham, his balance in his presentation, I thought was excellent in the way that he began with the Scriptures and the authority of the Scriptures and then moved to the science. Why? Because our RK is the Word of God. Right? Our, our key is Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, revealed in His Word. You all agree with that? And you would think that all of conservative Christianity would believe the same thing. This book is The Consequences of Ideas by R.C. Sproul. All right? R.C. Sproul, one of the most famous theologians of our day, one of the most popular theologians and Christian historians of our day. Let me read what he wrote. For Heraclitus, the process of change is not chaotic, but is orchestrated by, quote, God, unquote. I put God in quotes because for Heraclitus, God is not a personal being, but more like an impersonal force. Flux, not the flux capacitor, but flux is the product of a universal reason Heraclitus called the Logos. Now listen to this. 
Here we see the philosophical roots of the Logos concept that the Apostle John appropriated to define the preexistent and eternal person of the Godhead who became incarnate. John had to borrow the Logos idea to describe Jesus. In the beginning was the... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all in the when? Beginning. Beginning. Was or was not Jesus Christ the incarnate Word? I'm sorry, the pre-incarnate Word, before He came in flesh. Was He eternally the Word? What kind of a theologian would say that John borrowed that idea from Heraclitus? I want you to understand how wedded to philosophy Christian theologians are. And it's very, very dangerous. They're always afraid to be considered ignorant. Um, I, I remember when, uh, in studying the founding of the New Evangelical Movement, one of the first things they wanted to do, you remember, uh, through the fundamentalist movement, um, conservative evangelicalism had separated from the world, had separated from the, the theology, the bad theology that had entered into the seminaries. They had separated from it. When Harold Ockengay coined the term neo-evangelical or new evangelicalism, what they wanted to do was they, they no longer wanted to separate. They rejected the doctrine of biblical separation, and they said, we will infiltrate. And so Gleason Archer was one of the men that was involved in that. And so they had founded um, Biola University and Fuller Theological Seminary. Gleason Archer was at Fuller Theological Seminary. And the first thing that he did was he sought admission to the uh, Los Angeles Presbytery. He was a Presbyterian. And they wanted Fuller to be the, the Princeton Theological Seminary of the West. Now, Princeton was obviously theologically liberal, but they wanted those same kind of academic uh, awards and that academic recognition. The Bible's really true about knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge puffeth up. And so they really wanted be, to be accepted by the intelligentsia of the world. How's that working out? Because what happens is, like R.B. Willett, pastors up in Michigan, he says nearness is likeness. Nearness is likeness. If we rub shoulders with those kinds of people, we will begin thinking like them. Here, let's, let's bring it down to another level. Putting a bad apple in a bushel of good apples makes the bad apple better. What happens? The rest of the good apples become bad apples. What happens when a good apple immerses itself into a whole bunch of bad apples? See, here's the idea. People think that they can redeem institutions by their presence. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's why the Bible says mark them and avoid them. Someone's getting in trouble. Either that or they really hate philosophy. Um, so, this, this idea of Christians liking philosophy is nothing new. So, let's look 
at the Scriptures and see how the Bible deals with this concept. And then I want to show you how it influenced modern or how it influenced ancient Christianity and how it's still influencing today. Then we'll wrap it up. Let's look at how Paul dealt with people who through their own intellect, remember the reasonable man that we talked about this morning, let's see how Paul dealt with people who were trying to explain existence uh, through the power of their own intellect apart from God. Let's see what God says about it. All right, uh, we are in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, this is very clear, isn't it? Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. If you have an NIV, your Bible will say something like this. Uh, don't let anyone... I can't remember what word they use for spoil. Don't let anyone deceive you through um, empty or deceitful philosophy. There's not a Greek manuscript in the world that says that unless it was written by somebody after the NIV wrote it. Why do they have to say that? Because they love philosophy. The Bible doesn't say beware of bad philosophy. The Bible says beware of philosophy. Beware of philosophy. So we need to understand where philosophy comes from. What does the word philosophy mean? Love of wisdom. A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. Where does that come from? There was a man named Pythagoras. Anyone heard of the Pythag Path Pythagorean theorem? Pythagorean theorem. Anyone ever heard of that? Again, my math is just fantastic. Um, well, Pythagoras, he said that you could define, there were three kinds of people in the world, and you could define them by the kind of people that you would see at the Olympic Games. There were the, the lovers of honor, and they were the competitors. Uh, there were the, the lovers of gain. There were the people selling things. That's the lowest level. Lovers of gain, lovers of honor, they're the competitors, that's the middle. And then those who are watching it. And they were the lovers of wisdom. That's where the term philosophy came from, from this, the Pythagoras all the way back in between Thales and Heraclitus, a long time ago. That's where that idea came from. Philosophy. Philosophy. A lover of wisdom. A lover of wisdom. How can you mix worldly philosophy with Christianity? How can you blend that? Look at what the Bible says. Verse 8 again. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. What are the rudiments of the world? Earth, wind, fire, air, those, those elements, those fundamental elements, the rudiments of the world, the Bible is saying, don't let anyone deceive you by making you think that those elements are the arche. The arche, the chief idea in the world, is Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head 
of all principality and power. Don't be deceived. So now you have someone like R.C. Sproul who loves mixing philosophy and Christianity. Here's the reason why you can't do that. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Keep your place in Colossians 2, but look at 1 Corinthians 1 at the passage we read this morning. Look at verse 21. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God... Now look at this. The world, by wisdom... Remember philosophy, lover of wisdom, love of wisdom. The world, by wisdom, knew not God. All right? So, understand this. The world's, by the world's wisdom... You cannot know God. Is that what the Bible says? Through the wisdom of God, the world, by wisdom, knew not God. God said, what's going to take it, what, what is it going to take for people to come to me? The foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching. So by, by the world's wisdom, they knew not God. How do you mix the thing by which you cannot know God with the only thing that will bring you to God? Jesus. How do you mix those two things? You can't. You cannot do it. Can't be done. Are you all with me on that? It can't be done. So what's the issue here? Well, early on in Christianity, you had a problem. Remember, Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead around 33 A.D., roughly 33 A.D. The Bible is finished about 90 A.D. By 200 A.D., all kinds of evil things have begun creeping into the churches. It's already begun. So remember what happened. You have, you have two major sources for ideas. You have Antioch in Syria. Where were they first called Christians? And they were first called Christians in Antioch, Antioch, Syria. You have Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt. It's always a bad place in the Bible. Out of Alexandria, so out of the, the, they begin sending missionaries. The Apostle Paul is sent out in Acts chapter 13, right from Antioch, Egypt. They're teaching the Word of God. It's, that's where the truth is coming from. And the line of manuscripts that your Bible comes from come from Antioch in Syria. Very important. That's where your Bible comes from. Out of Alexandria in Egypt came uh, a school, a catechetical school, founded by uh, a man who wanted to marry... Greek philosophy with Judaism. He wanted to marry Greek philosophy with Judaism. All right? That school became a Christian school. Clement of Alexandria, and then comes a man named Adamantius Origen. So he begins teaching in that school. How many of you have heard of him? All right? If you've been in this church for any length of time and you've not heard of him, you are sleeping. Okay, he is public enemy number one for every Bible-believing Christian. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to marry Greek philosophy with Christianity, which cannot be done without defiling Christianity, right? Are you with me? So what he wanted to do was he loved the philosophy of Plato. He loved this concept of Plato. Let me tell you how whacked out Origen was. He believed... Based on 
Plato's theory of the tripartite soul, that all of us are disembodied souls. There are all these disembodied souls out there. The good ones become angels. The bad ones become demons. And the neutral ones become people. That's otherwise known as Mormonism, in case you didn't know. Okay, this is what Origen believed. Now, I want, to, I want you to see just how much this has infected people. Um, this book, this is History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff. Philip Schaff was on the translation committee of the American Standard Bible all the way back in uh, the 1800s. Um, he is an interesting man. I, I want to tell you more, but let me just read what he said about Origen. Origen was the greatest scholar of his age and the most gifted, most industrious, and most cultivated of all the anti-Nicene fathers. Anti-Nicene, that means before the Nicene uh, Council, Council of Nicaea. Even heathens and heretics admired or feared his brilliant talent and vast learning. His knowledge embraced all departments of the philology, that's history of ideas or the understanding of ideas, philosophy and theology of his day. With this, he united profound and fertile thought keen penetration, and glowing imagination. As a true divine, he consecrated all his studies by prayer and turned them, according to his best convictions, to the service of truth and piety. Does that sound like the same guy I just described? Let me tell you what he believed about Jesus. Because he bought into Plato's theory of forms, God is the ultimate idea, God the Father. That means God the Son must be less than God the Father. Origen wrote in his commentary on 1 John that in relation to truth, in relation to man, I'm sorry, in relation to man, Jesus is truth. In relation to God the Father, Jesus is error. Because of his philosophy, Jesus must be less than God the Father. That's the one that he just praised. Uh, okay, so this was written in the eight, late 1800s. Today, this book came out just this year. It's by Michael A.G. Haken. He's a Baptist. He's a conservative Baptist. He teaches at Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville. Okay? He said this about Origen. In fact, it is very evident to anyone who has spent time seriously interacting with Origen's massive exegetical and homiletical corpus that one is dealing with a man of profound spiritual maturity owing to his immersion in the scriptures, whether or not one agrees with the methods and details of the Egyptian exegete's interpretation. He was so brilliant, we have to learn from him. Well, the Bible says, if anybody brings another doctrine contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, mark him and avoid him. Does that sound like what Haken is doing? See, we have to understand the way that this philosophy has entered in and influenced Christianity and Christian thinking. They're not able to um, critically think. And that's that rejection of biblical separation in the New Evangelicals. This is, um, I have a series of books called 
the, the anti-Nicene fathers, the Nicene fathers, post-Nicene fathers. So this is all the extant material that's available from the church fathers, okay? Now, we don't call them church fathers. The Bible says, call no man on earth your father. It's interesting. They called uh, the, the Waldensians, the, the early Christians over in, the, in Italy, they wouldn't call their spiritual leaders fathers. They called them Barbies, which is uncle, because they didn't want to be disobedient to the Scriptures. Isn't that good? So we might want to wonder, why does somebody say, call some guy father? Now, they're not talking about your physical father. They're talking about spiritually. Interesting, isn't it? But anyway, this is one of the church fathers. So this is Origen's commentary on John. And um, here we have, For Christ is, in a manner, the demiurge, to whom the Father says, let there be light. He calls Jesus the demiurge. That's the, that's the secondary cause, not the first cause, not Jesus. He's not the Father. He's not completely God. Now look, it is so important that we understand that the one who says Jesus Christ is a lesser God is the one that's praised in modern Christianity. And he's the one that's behind all the modern translation of the Bible, translations of the Bible. If you wonder why in 1 Timothy 3.16, where the Bible says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It's origin. He's the one who changed it to he who is manifest in the flesh. Why? Because God can't be manifest in the flesh if you hold to the theory of forms, the theory of ideas. If you wonder where this concept of predestination comes from, the, the, the philosophical concept that God, before the foundation of the world, chose some people for heaven and some people for hell, where did that idea come from? That's a blending of Greek philosophy, Plato's theory of forms, everything was established before, everything has preexisted, and we come out from that. You can't find that in the Scriptures. You cannot find that from the Scriptures. The Bible says that God created everything out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3. That's what the Bible says. And so we have to understand how did Paul address the thinkers of his day who were trying to explain the world apart from the one true God. Go back to Colossians chapter 2 and let's finish this up. Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. I think you'll find this interesting. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. Think that has any pertinence to us today? Interesting, isn't it? Uh, if, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted. Okay, now here's what I want to do. Everybody look at me. Everybody look up here. Everyone? Everyone? Do I have everybody's eyes? Everybody? Everybody? Everyone. All right. This is the most important part of the message. I want you to see what Paul said we're supposed to have confidence in. All right? Let's look at this verse. Look at verse 2. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all riches of... Now, see that riches? Think about this. What is... It, what is Jesus say to the church at Laodicea, Because thou sayest we are rich and increased with goods, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and blind and naked. Poor and miserable and blind and naked. All right? Remember that? 
So he says, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. You need, to, be, you need to, to have full confidence, full assurance that God's a mystery. You will never understand God. If you think that through your reason you can understand God, you have been spoiled by philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and not after Christ. And look at, check it out. Look at what it says. The full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. The Godhead. Godhead. Full assurance. The mystery of the Godhead. Why? Check it out. You ready for this? Verse 3. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you're a true lover of wisdom, you'll love Jesus. If you want to have true knowledge and wisdom, if you want to be a scholar, know Christ. Know God. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him. What was Paul's message to the people trying to explain the world apart from God? Know Jesus. Know God the Father through God the Son by the drawing of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the only way to know truth. That's the only way to have joy. That's the only way to have happiness. And that's the only way to have answers. What would Paul have said to Bill Nye? Believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? You think you have knowledge. You think you have wisdom. You have nothing. The only true wisdom is the wisdom of God. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word.